Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Planet Pantry Podcast, a show about all the pantry staples that people around the world reach for every day to make the foods they love. Fermentation has come up many times already in the short history of this podcast, and I'll admit that that is in part because I'm a bit of a fermentation nerd. I practice it a lot on my own time, and I love fermented products. But it's not all exotic treasures and newfangled experiments from top chefs. Fermentation is also key to more pantry staples than many people realize, and it has been for basically as long as we've been cooking. Our diets would look very different and probably a lot more boring if it wasn't for fermentation. So as we explore the pantries of the world, it's gonna come up a lot, and I think that's great. In that spirit, two weeks ago we started looking into dairy by exploring the various milks the world has to offer, and last week we saw what happens when you shake up the fatty parts of that milk to make butter. But this week, we're going to look at fermented milk products, and this is such a big family that we couldn't even begin to talk about every member of it. It is so big, in fact, that we are going to have to extend this series to do it justice. This week, we'll be looking at kefir, yogurt, kumis, and the like, and next week, we'll be looking at cheese. There's just so much to each of these broad categories that they deserve their own episodes. One day, I hope to be able to cover things like this in depth in longer episodes, so if you want to help make that happen, do all this stuff to please the various algorithms which decide my fate. Like, subscribe, rate, all that stuff. And help me build a community over on Patreon. We have a few cool things up there for you to look at, but I'll start adding more as soon as I get my first patron, and hopefully we can build a solid community around pantry staples. But with that said, this world of fermented dairy products is vast and filled with amazing foods and drinks, so I'm sure that by the end of this episode, you'll have a couple of things to add to your pantry at home. So grab some Vili, some Yakult, or some Iron, and let's get into it. So we've got a big field in front of us, and it is littered with rabbit holes, so let's jump down the biggest one, yogurt. But this isn't just a hole, it's a system of tunnels that break off into subcategory upon subcategory, and there are thin walls connecting it to other closely related pantry staples. One really cool thing about milk is that many of the changes which it undergoes to become the many products we enjoy today occur under pretty normal circumstances. Meaning that when we started to harvest milk from our farm animals, it was just waiting to show us what it could do. We saw this last week with the supposed story of ancient herders carrying milk in sheepskin bags and accidentally creating butter, and yogurt has a similar story. Yogurt likely came about when sheep herders in the Middle East around Mesopotamia carried their milk in bags made from the stomachs of their dearly departed sheep. The sheep stomach bags likely contained enzymes which reacted with the milk at a decent temperature to curdle it and produce yogurt. The herdsmen would have noticed that this curdled milk tasted great and lasted way longer than milk in its original state. But how does it work? How does this make milk last longer? And why does it get thicker? Let's answer these questions by looking at how yogurt is made today, and that is far from a straightforward answer. The problem in understanding how yogurt is made is also great news to those of us who can't get enough of this stuff. There are dozens if not hundreds of ways to make yogurt around the world. Which ones are used depend on a few factors including which animals are available, the climate of the region, methods used, and good old-fashioned preference. To start, we're going to be looking at what many call traditional yogurt. 
that is loose, thinner yogurt sold under brands like Danone. As we've discussed before, the goal in fermenting is to reduce the odds of unwanted microorganisms growing by creating an environment for ones that we want. If we're successful in doing this, the good bacteria will claim the land as theirs, and the bad ones won't have a friendly environment to call home. When it comes to something like milk, which comes from a place with a very diverse microbiome, it's often a good idea to start with a blank slate. It's for this reason that many producers will pasteurize their milk, killing off every living thing inside of it and clearing space for our bacteria, namely Lactobacillus bulgaricus and Streptococcus thermophilus. So on that note, the first step in many modern yogurt production operations is to obtain pasteurized and homogenized milk. Once you've got your milk, it's heated to a higher temperature than is normally achieved for pasteurization. It's then cooled to a bacteria-friendly temperature and starter is added. And then the whole deal is incubated at around 115 degrees for about 8 to 10 hours. After incubation, the yogurt is cooled and you have some nice, slightly runny yogurt and from there you can add whatever fruits, honey, or other toppings you want. Pretty straightforward, right? The problem is that every single step of this process can be different depending on what you want your yogurt to look like. So starting at the top, pasteurization and homogenization are relatively new concepts. So of course they are optional since yogurt was made without them for thousands of years. These techniques are widely used by home yogurt makers and commercial producers alike because they ensure a more consistent product. But the majority of yogurt's variability comes in the bacteria used, and there's a lot to unpack here, so as usual, if I miss anything, let me know and I'll try and correct any mistakes. I've also linked a paper from Le Station de Recherche Laitier in France, which does a great job of explaining the biology behind yogurt, so definitely check that out. So, in a video that I've also linked in the show notes, the godfather of fermentation himself, Sandor Katz, tells of when he first started playing with yogurt, and I can definitely relate to his story. Many people out there may or may not know that you can use store-bought yogurt as a starter to make your own with store-bought milk. This is really fun to do, a great thing to have in your back pocket, and it works pretty well. All you have to do is smear about a tablespoon of yogurt onto the bottom of a container, cover it with about half a liter of milk, and keep it at around 115 degrees Fahrenheit overnight. And this warm environment can easily be achieved in your oven with the light on. I encourage you all to try this, but just make sure that you buy some yogurt that's labeled with live cultures or something that's not been pasteurized. So Sandor explains in his video that he used this method for some time, and that it worked well the first time, but each subsequent batch that he would make would get thinner and thinner until about the 10th batch when it would no longer resemble yogurt at all. He goes on to explain how this begs the question, how is yogurt starter passed from generation to generation if it can't survive more than 10 batches? The answer, as he learned from some biologist friends, turned out to be the very tame bacterial culture of store-bought yogurt. Once the bacterial slate has been wiped clean, yogurt producers often add their own starter, which almost always stars two bacteria, Lactobacillus bulgaricus and Streptococcus thermophilus. Other bacteria such as Lactobacillus acidophilus, Bifidobacterium bifidum, and Lactobacillus casei are often added for their potential health benefits, but the S. thermophilus and L. bulgaricus are what really make yogurt work. The problem is that it's a tough world out there, and this yogurt and its cultures haven't experienced the various phages and other bacteria-killing things that live outside 
of their controlled environment. So as soon as you open your cup of yogurt, these unwanted microorganisms find their way in and start attacking the bacteria who have no idea how to defend themselves. Heirloom or traditional yogurt cultures, on the other hand, have been through many generations of producing yogurt and dealing with the harsh world around us. As a result, they are genetically hardened against these threats and continue to adapt to the world around them with each generation of bacteria produced. So whereas store-bought yogurt can only last for about 10 batches, traditional yogurt can keep going for as long as you treat it right. There are many stories out there of people who move from the yogurt-happy parts of the world, namely Central Asia and India, to the United States, only to find that the yogurt here was not what they were used to. And that just wasn't going to fly. Yogurt is so central to these food cultures not just as a nutritious drink or snack, but as a key flavor component to many dishes. This has led to many beautiful stories of people bringing their starters to their new homes, often smeared in a cloth and folded into their luggage, and sharing them with others who found themselves stranded in a sea of subpar yogurt. People attach a lot of sentimental value and taste preference to their own yogurt, and to many, there is no replacement for what they've been using for their entire lives. But for us who didn't grow up with yogurt being made several times a week in our homes, there are providers like Cultures for Health in the United States who sell heirloom cultures. But this stuff is a lot like sourdough in that people are always happy to share it, so if you know someone who makes their own yogurt, I'm sure they'd throw some your way. But it's also like sourdough in that it's pretty high maintenance, so if you want to seek out a good starter, be ready to make a new batch of yogurt at least once a week to keep it happy and healthy. But getting back to those bacteria, let's take a look at how they work and what happens if you change things up right after this. Looking at the history of so many of our favorite foods, you can understand the magic and mysticism of how people saw this stuff in the past. You leave milk out for a certain amount of time in the right conditions, maybe you add something to it, and the next day you have this thick, delicious, and totally different thing. Without the amazing work of scientists over the past few centuries, what sounds crazier? That you're effectively casting some kind of spell? That the gods are gracing you? or that billions of tiny living things are working at an unimaginably small scale to turn your milk into yogurt. Leaving milk out at room temperature for long enough, many of us have seen what happens when bacteria live free and too much lactic acid is produced. It gets chunky. This is because as milk gets more acidic, the proteins in it start to attract each other and form clumps, leaving us with clumps of protein and a sour, cloudy liquid. But the goal of making yogurt and other products is to use that same lactic acid to our benefit, creating an environment which preserves our milk while also lending a delicious, sour, but not off-putting flavor. The key to making this work in our favor is that first step in yogurt production, heating the milk. Many amateur yogurt makers, myself included, have skipped this step, thinking that it only serves to sanitize the milk, and if we're using the stuff that's already been pasteurized, what's the point? But the true reason for heating milk to these temperatures and holding it there for at least a few minutes is to get the casein proteins to interact with some of the whey proteins and form a complex structure. This structure is dense and restricts the separation of water so it keeps everything together in a nice sort of gel state. 
So the lactic acid bacteria produce our delicious acid, which tries to separate the proteins from the water in our milk. But since we heated our milk and created this complex structure, instead of a mess of curds floating in sour water, we get nice, smooth, creamy yogurt. And although you absolutely can skip the heating step, if you do, your yogurt will never be as thick as you might hope. How cool is it that people figured this out? If you're anything like me, you might have been a bit sad growing up when you learned that you'd never be able to levitate objects or summon lightning with a simple spell. But this is just as cool as wizardry, alchemy, or the Force. Instead of the midichlorians which drive the Force in Star Wars, we're using bacteria to perform alchemy and wizardry to our benefit. You can even put your yogurt jar in a pentagram if you really want to feel like you're performing magic. But people like their yogurt in many different forms. Some avoid the heating purposefully in order to maintain a looser temperature. Some add things like milk powder and condensed milk to increase the water retention capability and to make it thicker or sweeter. And some, like in the case of Greek yogurt or labna, strain the moisture off to achieve a thicker consistency. But what about drinking yogurt? There are so many ways to do this. One of my absolute favorite things in the world is iron, which is also called dug, dale, or tan across Central Asia and beyond. This is yogurt diluted in water to the point where it becomes a nice, creamy, but fully chuggable drink. I like it carbonated and this can be done either by diluting it in carbonated water or by sealing it and allowing it to ferment and carbonate itself naturally. Mint is often added and it makes a very refreshing treat in the summer. Now kefir is something entirely different and it goes back to our theme of fermentation as magic. And for this spell, we're going to need to go on a quest to find some very special crystals. These crystals, most often known as kefir grains, are a SCOBY. SCOBY is an acronym which stands for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. We'll get into this when we do an episode about kombucha someday, but for now, just know that it's a bunch of bacteria and yeasts, at least 30 different species in the case of kefir, clumped together into these cool-looking, rubbery grains. This diverse array of bacteria lend to all manner of activity, producing acids, alcohol, and if you're lucky, a little fizzy effervescence. It's pretty easy to make this at home once you get your hands on the grains, it's just a matter of pouring milk over them and waiting a day or two for our microbial friends to perform their magic. Kefir is highly valued across Central Asia and Eastern Europe, but arguably nowhere more so than Russia, and there's an amazing story behind one woman's journey to obtain these magical crystals. It is said that the Prophet Muhammad himself gave the people kefir and praised the power of the grains, but warned if they were taken outside of their homeland of the Caucasus Mountains, they would lose their healing properties. So for centuries, families guarded them as an heirloom and a status symbol, and people could only sample this mystical beverage in the Caucasus. Doctors of the All-Russian Physician Society wanted to get a hold of kefir grains to prepare the drink for their patients in the early 20th century, and approached dairy owner Nikolai Balandov for help. Balandov came up with a fantastical plan. He would send his most beautiful employee, Irina Sakharova, to seduce the Caucasian prince Bek Mirza Bakorov, and when he let his guard down, she would steal the grains. The beautiful young woman traveled to Kislovodsk and met the prince. He was indeed smitten with her but refused to give up the goods. A superstition existed at the time and remains in some communities today that giving away kefir grains would upset the spirits, so it was unlikely that anyone would dare test their luck 
even for the beautiful arena. Disheartened by the failure of her mission, Sakharova left the prince and went to find someone who might be willing to share the secrets of Kefir with her. But before she could get too far, she was kidnapped and brought back to the prince. The prince defended his actions by claiming that it was part of a local tradition of kidnapping a bride, but Irina was rescued by the men who had accompanied her on her journey, so she managed to escape the forced marriage and the prince was put on trial, where he was forced to give kefir grains as settlement. Irina Sakharova then returned to Russia with the first bottles of kefir, which were used as medicine, and soon after, it became the staple of many Russian diets. This story is pretty crazy and likely filled with holes, but it's not entirely myth. The great-grandson of the prince refutes the kidnapping narrative and says that the grains were given to Irina as a gift. But details aside, Irina Sakharova received a letter in 1973 at the age of 85 from the Minister of the Food Industry of the USSR thanking her for bringing kefir and all its benefits to the Russian people. Kefir truly is an amazing drink. It's delicious and brings joy and nutrition to millions every day. We could never cover all the fermented dairy products that so many love to this degree, but let's quickly go over some that we haven't touched on yet right after this. Part of what makes kefir so valuable to the people of more northern parts of the world is that the cultures which make it possible are mesophilic. Yogurt cultures are thermophilic, meaning that they do best in higher temperatures, like those found in an oven with the light on. Mesophilic cultures, on the other hand, like those responsible for kefir, do best at room temperature, around 75 degrees Fahrenheit or around the low 20s C. There are a lot of yogurt and kefir style products made with these cultures and the countries of Scandinavia have really mastered them and they maintain a unique family of ropey, slimy fermented milk products. These ropey milk products include Langfil in Sweden, Tetemilk in Norway, and Vili in Finland. But let's take a specific look at Vili because there's an excellent description of it from the Nordic Food Lab which I've linked in the notes. Vili makes use of many bacteria, but the one responsible for the sliminess is the lactic acid bacteria Lactococcus lactic subspecies Cremoris. This bacteria eats the sugars in milk and excretes long chains of polysaccharides which create this prized ropey texture. If you pick up a spoonful of Vili, much of the bowl is going to try to come with it because it's all connected through these long chains. This is supposed to be very healthy for our immune system, but it also produces that same gelling effect that we talked about in yogurt and allows Vili to last a very long time. But what sets Vili apart from other similar Nordic dairy treats is the growth of the mold Geotrichum candidum on top. The acid in yogurt makes mold growth rare, but this mold likes the acid and even consumes some of it, leading to a slightly less acidic product than other similar foods. The mold is the most prized part to many Vili eaters and it lends a delicious fruity, mushroomy flavor and a nice creamy texture. If you want to try this stuff, culture providers like Jim and Cultures for Health sell the starter online. Other fermented milk products from our friends in the Nordic countries include Filmulk and Skier. We won't get too much into these, but there are tons of great resources for them and I encourage you to check them out. But Skier is picking up traction in the United States as a trendy new replacement for Greek yogurt under brands like Sigis. 
but it's a bit of a controversy whether or not what we buy in the store here can actually be considered skier. But regardless, traditional skier is coagulated with rennet, so it's technically a cheese and therefore the subject of next week's episode. But for now, let's continue going over a few more fermented dairy products. Kumis is an exceptional fermented milk beverage partly because it's made from horse milk. This stuff is especially popular in parts of Central Asia where the tradition of horse riding is most prominent. It's fermented with a mix of bacteria and yeast, and because of mare's milk's relatively high sugar content, it ends up with as much as 3% alcohol by volume. Kumis has a rich and amazing history, and it, like all of these products, deserves an episode of its own, and hopefully, we can make that happen someday. Kumis was mentioned by Herodotus as being produced by the Scythians in the 5th century BCE, and the capital of Kyrgyzstan today is named for the equipment used to make it. In Sudan, camel's milk is fermented to make the indigenous product garris by letting the camel carry the milk as they go about their business, constantly shaking and letting the heat encourage fermentation. Sudanese also make baruni by fermenting milk and allowing it to ripen for up to 10 years. Yakult is a famous probiotic beverage from Japan which includes the bacteria Lactobacillus paracasi, and it has become a staple of many diets around the world. Conveniently found in tiny bottles, they're beloved by people who want a quick probiotic shot, but they also add a nice, fruity milkiness to popular boba teas. In China, a popular dessert found in Beijing called Nai Lao consists of milk steamed with rice wine. Both the steam and the wine help the milk coagulate, and if done right, it won't leak water and it will form a beautiful sweet custard. In Kenya, morsik is prepared by fermenting milk at ambient temperatures in specialized gourds. These gourds are often cleaned with smoke, similar to how Korean ganjang and donjang producers often smoke their ongi before fermentation. In the case of morsik, however, the smoke from the ite tree gives the drink a special flavor and a distinct bluish color. Creme fraiche is a staple of French cuisine and it's made by adding a starter culture to heavy cream and allowing it to sit for a few days until it has a nice tang. This can add a degree of freshness and fermenty tang to a wide variety of soups, sauces, and more. And as I mentioned last week, if you take that creme fraiche, heavy cream that's been lightly fermented, and beat it well beyond the whipped cream stage, you'll end up with cultured butter and buttermilk. Because of how we used to separate cream from milk, pretty much all butter and buttermilk was cultured until about a hundred years ago. And although we have become quite comfortable with our modern butter, Cultured butter is seeing a resurgence in popularity just because it's really good. I highly recommend making your own buttermilk because it's really easy and it's honestly way overpriced in many grocery stores. I'll post a guide for that on Patreon sometime this week for anyone who wants to give it a try. If we look at some products like Egyptian Mish, Central Asian Kashk, or European Quark, we start to ride the line between yogurt and cheese. These are very closely connected products with some things like skier and quark riding very close to that line. But next week, we're going to hop over to the other side and explore the world of cheese. The world of cheese is a really big one and it's going to see us revisiting some of our other animal friends as we discover the massive variety of what people around the world have done with all kinds of milk and microorganisms. But until then, reflect on the fact that there are wizards among us in all corners of the globe people who have harnessed the power of billions of tiny workers to perform alchemy, and think about some spells that you might want to perform yourself. These foods can massively impact the quality of your eating and the connection to it, 
and all of the giants of the world whose shoulders we stand on to make the foods we love. It's really amazing how lucky we are to have access to Vili, Iron, Morsik, and so many other pantry staples at the same time. So don't be put off by weird textures or smells. Some of these things might not seem delicious to us now, especially if we didn't grow up with them, but by breaking down these thin walls, we open up a world of delicious foods. So try something new, talk about it, and come back next week and we'll all learn about cheese together. As usual, if you have any notes, corrections, or ideas for future episodes, reach out to me through the links in the show notes. Also, support the show if you enjoy the content and want to see it get better. Big shout out this week to Hugo K, who is Planet Pantry's first supporter. I've had a lot of fun putting these episodes together, and people like Hugo will help the podcast grow and improve over time. Thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll see you next week as we dive into cheese. <laughs>